Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Micah Maddox. He is in the English department at Regent University. He's also the literary editor of the American Conservative. Uh, Micah, are you the chairman of the English department? That's right. I'm chair of the English department. That's right. Big department? It's a big department because we have online classes as well as on campus. So we have uh, close to 300 uh, majors, um, which is very big for English. That, 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 that is very good. Uh, uh, numbers have been going down in the last uh, 20, 20 or 30 years, actually. 300 sounds pretty strong. But, but as chairman, uh, with all those courses to schedule and those, those professors, you get a lot of emails that say, Dear Tyrant. Oh, <laughs> oh absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, or Slacker, you know, whatever. It shows you're doing your job. Anyway, uh, Mike, he has a collection of many short essays on poetry and poets entitled The Soul is a Stranger in This World. It's just out. Uh, Micah, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks very much for having me. All right. Well, well b- before we get to the book, just, just an, I have an academic question for you. When I was at Emory over the years, I just retired from Emory a few months ago, it was last year, and... What I found on, on the job market over, over 30 years from the 80s forward was that poetry really as a field had, had diminished. I, I always thought that that was just the numbers, thought that that was because the rise of social issues and identity issues just lent, lent itself more to the novel, to media, to social, social discourse than to verse. Have you seen the same thing? Well, I think to some degree, yes, and certainly in terms of readership. You know, if you look at uh, you know a few um, poets and First World War poets, or even earlier, you know, they had these very large readerships. Newspapers would publish poems and so forth. Um, um, you don't see that today. Um, folks publish in these small journals. Every university has a you know a creative writing journal. If they have a creative writing program, it seems, and so there's. You know, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of, of, of journals where they publish, um, but no one reads them, just other poets. And so it's just weird situation where, um, you know, uh, MFA programs have have grown over the past 50 to 60 years. I mean, I think there was three MFA programs in the 1950s or something. Uh, now there's over 300 
um, they're going and they're they're learning how to 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 write, you know, in a credentialed way, which usually means sort of, you know, slightly leftist, uh, parataxis, uh, you know, um, jumbled syntax and so forth, um, um, so that they can publish in these journals no one reads, so they can get a tenure track job, and so. So, so yeah, I think certainly in terms of impact, you know, it, it doesn't have the same sort of uh, impact because of the lack of readerships, which is why poets often complain. Sort of this weird situation. They they claim that they're these sort of great these great revolutionary forces for for justice and so forth, um, and and uh, but then at the same time complaining that no one reads their work and and that you should be nice to them because if you don't if you're not nice to them in your in, in your, your works of criticism and so forth you're somehow um, ruining poetry. So so it's sort of a weird situation in that sense. As the literary editor of the American Conservative, then you you must get a ton of poetry books sent to you, review copies. Well, yes and no. I mean, um, so um, you know, Poetry Foundation. When when I would write reviews and so forth, they would sometimes cover because I write reviews um, from a certain perspective. You know, I'm not afraid to sort of call out bad poems, and so I think that limits the number that come in a little bit. But uh, but yeah, we get a fair a fair share, that's for sure. In the opening essay, you talk, make some general comments about the, the nature of poetry in, in the modern times, contemporary times, and you actually say that one problem with that audience shrinking is the contemporary poet is no longer, quote, the companion of the common man. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, you know, Wordsworth thought of the poet as the companion of the po of a man speaking to other men. You know, here he is a poet writing about uh, life and death and suffering, um, these sorts of things. And the, the idea that poetry is a consolation, you know, it's, it's uh, something that sort of lessens to some degree the harsh, harsh edges of life and um, lets us know that we're not alone in our suffering and these sorts of things. In the 20th century, sort of a weird situation where poets began understanding themselves as almost, you know, godlike figures who who do not um, respond to reality or, or highlight the truths of human existence, um, what um, Ezra Pound called, you know, sort of immaterial man, man is uh, in his human condition, but as the constructors of reality. And so, um, you know, Guillaume Apollinaire said that, you know, without artists, everything would be reduced to chaos. There would be no more seasons even without artists, you know, that this is the Obviously, hyperbole, but uh, but this is sort of the view that uh, you know poets construct reality; they don't respond to reality, um, and um, and then combined with sort of this leftist idea of of the poet as a, a revolutionary force um, to um, to sort of murder off the, the bourgeois morals and, um, and and write poems that were supposed to you know um, shock their audience and um, wake them up from 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 their you know, they're, they're, they're drugged up, uh, you know, uh, life. Um, and so, you know, um, what happens over time is that these poets are no longer writing for a general audience. They end up writing for, for other, for other poets and uh, the audience that they're supposed to be waking up is sort of just ignoring them. Um, and, and, um, and so, you know, um, it's, it's a situation where, um, yeah, they've they've taken on these these sort of grand views of their art and um, and of their of their role in society, while at the same time seeing that role diminish. You know, and um, uh, Dana Joya wrote an essay um, about I guess now wow 20, 30 years ago thirty years ago 
more than 30 years ago, um, you know, does poetry matter? Sort of making some of the similar points that poets have sort of um, neglected their their duty to um, um, other people in society and sort of lifting themselves up and no longer addressing the, the general audience. You know, I, I saw this when I started going to poetry readings in, in academia, in English departments, when I was in, in the 1980s as a graduate student and an assistant professor at Emory, which has a very distinguished creative writing program at, at Emory. But the visiting poets, they, they would come in and these poetry readings were such solemn, serious, humorless affairs. And I, I, I was always thinking, why is everyone so uptight in here about this poet speaking? But I think your, your description of the poet becoming not a man speaking to his fellow man, but a, a figure who's come out of the oracle or, or someone, someone who's sort of the, the high priest. You, you actually quote uh, the essay by Miloš stating that the loss of God turns the poet into sort of a self-defined demigod. And, and I, I, but but you, you, you have a little skepticism about whether that's, that's the real cause of it or, or not. I, actually, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's that in in some degree, you know, I mean, certainly secularization, you know, has has sort of emptied the world of its meaning and um, the meanings that poets construct to replace it is is uh, paltry. Um, but um, I I I think it's also to some degree the the, the poets writing for other uh, poets, uh, at least in America, has been driven by the MFA programs that are producing and. Um, the funny thing is, is that these uh, James Matthew Wilson pointed this out in, in his collection of essays from a couple of years ago, how all these poets are learning these sort of avant-garde or post-avant-garde techniques, you know, um, using uh, ellipses and uh, fragmented syntax and uh, simple sentences, avoiding all sort of complex sentence to to uh, to sort of, you know, capture the egalitarian line and, and these sorts of things. Um Theoretically, it's because again they're, they're they they see themselves as this revolutionary force and trying to uh, push against against you know the capitalistic markets that uh, transform everything into you know objects to be purchased, while at the same time doing that in order to land that job and to get that nice you know or some somewhat nice salary uh, and and have the freedom to to write poems that no one no one reads and so. So it is, I think, that secularization, but there's also this sort of these 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 market forces that that are driving folks to write in this way, um, and uh, so the rhetoric is one thing, the reality is something else. I I, I find the, that kind of those clipped, ungrammatical assertions, self-observations, some experience, it actually makes me go back to uh, often the, want, want to reread the figure that you begin with most of your essays are on 20th century poets we've only got a couple of pre-20th century figures emily dickinson is one uh but you begin with john milton and and i actually love reading milton's long blank verse and is he still the giant of english poetry you know harold harold bloom uh, in, in his 1970s period regarded milton as a great shadow looming over all the romantics or at least the early romantics, Blake and Wordsworth especially. Is Milton still the giant? No, he's not. Um, his his uh, the, he had the 400th anniversary of 
Uh, Shakespeare was sort of celebrated with great, you know, festivities, and Jane Austen, I think, had a, um, a couple of years ago. But uh, but um, but Milton, um, his 350th anniversary, 2018, was almost entirely ignored. I mean, no one wrote anything. I think there's just a handful of bulk books on Milton, um, and um, I think there was talk of doing sort of a, a TV show based upon Paradise Lost. You know, <laughs> it was supposed to be like you know, Game of Thrones slash Paradise Lost kind of kind of approach. And I never looked up to see if it actually came out. But but no, he's not. I mean, part of that's because uh, it's a long poem, you know, I mean, and so Paradise Lost, you know, Milton obviously wrote lyrics as well and and shorter pieces, but but uh, Paradise Lost is his work, you know, and so um, I think folks are discouraged by that. It's a highly theological work, you know, I mean, the illusions that that Milton makes to to the Bible, to um, even just theological terms and so forth, um, probably are lost on a 21st century audience for the most part. Um, and there's not really a, a, a good foothold for 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 you know the quote unquote theory approach to Milton, you know. And so so even sort of him being remembered in a subversive way, you know, um, is 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 not there either. So. So it's unfortunate because Paradise Lost, I think, is just an amazing work. You know, it's one of these works that you can read over and over again. It at one time was sort of regarded as, you know, sort of the equal of of uh, of um, and, um, Dante and and um, and and Virgil's, uh, you know, Aeneid. And so um, and um, so, but he's not anymore. And, and I think this, in, in some degree, because of you know the theology and the length of the poem, Satan it is. Is there any uh, Satan is one of the most brilliantly drafted, deep, complex, fascinating, and evil characters ever ever created in in the history of English literature? Milton does an amazing job of showing what evil actually looks like. I mean, one of his main points uh, is that evil almost always looks good, you know, um, it, uh, and there's always a very convincing rationale for why um, we should commit the evil acts that we, we do. Um, and you see that in, 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 uh, in Satan, you know, he, he's really casted as a kind of, you know, he's an anti-hero, he's a kind of an epic hero. He goes on this great voyage for this great task and he comes back to his people. And so he does go through all these motions that you see in other great uh, epics, but it's all in the service of himself, not even the other demons, you know, I mean, um, and his only his only satisfaction, he says, is destruction. And, and that's the only thing that, um, that that provides him sort of with any sort of purpose. Um, but it's all presented, you know, um, in uh, sometimes, you know, very ornate language. Uh, you know, uh, Satan is very convincing. He's very well spoken. You know, I mean, if, if he were. Living today, I mean, he would probably be a well-dressed, you know, cosmopolitan Parisian man, you know, and uh, uh, and uh, you know, um, uh, look very moral on the outside and uh, do all the right things that our society appreciates. Um, but meanwhile, behind the scenes, right, he's serving himself and himself alone. Um, and that's that's a lesson I think today that in our very simplistic age. Um, where we sort of shout each other down and um, and have a, a sort of very puritanical, simplistic moral system where we just cancel things that we don't like, and we think that evil is very easy to recognize. Um, I, you know, Milton shows that that's not the case. The great monument in in, in Anglo-American poetry 
in the 20th century has, has usually been the wasteland. And you have a you have a chapter, an essay here on Eliot. Is the wasteland holding steady as one of one of the major monuments? Um, I think so, though, you know, I don't I don't I, I don't know how long how much longer, you know, because once again, like Milton, I mean, um, you know, Eliot has all these allusions to to Western culture and, and requires a lot of the reader to understand and to to follow, um, you know, opening line. And we have uh, um, allusion to Canterbury Tales and, and goes on from there. And um, and so um, because of that, uh, I think you probably won't see it as much, but still it, it's there. I mean, it, and it does 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 trace um uh, what we generally understand sort of happened in the 20th century. It's lament, in a sense, for a loss of meaning, for a loss of power of uh, religious symbols. Um, it's um, a, um, sort of a lament for the culture of death that our society has become. And, um, and so I think because of that, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to see um, that. But I think um, – a lot of readers today are, you know, yearning for a sort of a more sort of hopeful, simplistic, progressive view that we'll be able to remake everything new again. It might be ignored because of that, uh, but that would probably a time where it's needed even more to remind us of, of the, the fact that we can't construct this utopian society. Um, it always leads to sort of uh, shattered dreams. Uh, you have an essay on Wallace Stevens. Uh who uh, a biography of Stevens by Paul Mariani was the, was the prompt for it. And I, I read that biography uh, and Mariani makes a lot out of Eliot's uh, sorry, Wallace Stevens's final weeks when Stevens actually ended up being admitted to the Catholic church. What do you, I mean, Stevens, the early Stevens is often taken as the great humanist figure in, in poems like Sunday morning from the 19, I think that was 1915. And Stevens died, what, 1955 or so. Uh, how do you read his, is it, a, is it a conversion? Would you call it a deathbed conversion that happened? Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to say because we don't really know. We just have the account of the priest and uh, Stevens, Stevens' daughter. And critics right afterwards very quick to sort of denounce the conversion and say, no, 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 Stevens would never do this. Um, um, I can see him doing it. Um, you know, when I was a graduate student, uh, one of my professors was a big fan of, of, of Wallace Stevens, and uh, we were reading some of his early poems, and he was talking about Stevens' early skepticism and, um, and so forth. But he said if he were to come to church with you, he would sing louder than anybody, you know, uh, kind of hitting on this sort of Stevens' love for music and the sort of joy of life. And if you read Stevens' work, you know, over the years, in, in the 30s and 40s, for, for Stevens, his view was, <clears throat> you know, that, you know, there's there's no meaning in reality. The poet constructs this supreme fiction that that um, tells us great story that makes sense of it, that uh, provides us with pleasure. Um, there's a lot of musicality in, in the world and colors and senses and sounds. Um, and we should just take pleasure um, in, in, in those things. And the poet sort of brings those to life for us. That's sort of his early view. Um, and... Uh, and you know, viewed man as simply uh, uh, biological, nothing, nothing more. But for Stevens, the imagination which transforms this world uh, was a problem for him because it was part of the world, but also it was separate from it. You know, and so 
where does it come from? Where, um, you know, why is it that uh, we find order pleasurable in the first place, you know? Um, and so, you know, he would make statements towards the you know, sort of end of his life that, um, you know, seemed to be, you know, preparing for that for that conversion. And one of his um, later essays, The Irrational Element in Poetry, you know, he, he came to the view that the, the world is harmonious and good, you know, and um, and he said it's this, you know, um, this order that you find in the world, he says, was synonymous with God. Um, and uh, and then also, you know, God and the imagination are one, you know, that's not too far um, from something like Coolridge, you know. And so so, you know, my view is I, I, I could see him see him converting, certainly, and some of the statements that he made, you know, um, his poetry was headed in that direction anyway. You know, the earlier um, poems, which are a lot of fun, you know, uh, The Emperor of Ice Cream and so forth of Harmonium, um, lots of things going on there. But there is a sense in which, you know, there's not much else um, underneath. And Stevens himself sort of came to have that view. And um, and it's the later, more um, seriously uh, philosophical poems um, that I think he'll be remembered for in the long run. So Robert Frost will be another figure well known to our, our listeners, to, to everyone. Now, but you begin your essay on Frost with a recent fictional story about him by Joyce Carol Oates that portrays Frost as a misogynistic, chauvinistic slob. What motivates that, that kind of characterization for Frost? Well, some of the some of the biographies that Frost has, has had, he hasn't had great luck in uh, biographers who've um, presented him in, in in this way, and um, and that's been unfortunate. And I think Oates is is drawing from 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 those from those biographies, and um, and also you know, you know she had a ten- tendency to do this sort of thing. But yeah, and that that story, she has Frost you know, as an old man sitting on his front porch, and this you know MFA student comes to asks for some advice, you know, and he, you know, begins groping her and she runs away and then he sort of falls down pathetically in the mud, you know, showing the, the pig that he is, right, you know, and and I think there's, a, you know, like a, a good envoi by the, by, the, by the MFA student to put him in his place. But, but that's, that characterization of Frost really is not, you know, since, since those biographies come out, there's been letters that have come out. The two, two volumes of Frost letters have just, you know, um, come out in the last couple of years, as well as memoirs from his granddaughter. And, um, yeah, and those, those, those really present Frost as someone who cared deeply about, first of all, his family, um, his, his wife, he viewed as an equal partner in her, in his, in his poetry. And, and I think when he would, uh, receive letters that would sort of suggest otherwise, that, oh, your poor wife having to slave in the kitchen while you do your work, he's, he pushed back pretty hard about that and, and, um, and said that she was the unspoken half of everything he wrote, you know, and she was often his first critic, uh, would read his poems and um, and and so forth. And likewise, Frost was relatively involved in family life. You know, um, you know, uh, failed as a farmer, obviously, but but uh, but you know, he would write poems and tell stories um, for for his daughter, um, and uh, was very involved in her in her education and cared about um, you know her school. And um, so so he was you know, a man who was you know, not misogynistic was, was in some sense, you know, progressive for his, for his time in, in many respects. Um, and it's, you know, these presentations of him as sort of, uh, 
this pig-like character who just used people for his own uh, career as a sort of mischaracterization of, of, of Frost. Not, not to say he was an easy man. I mean, uh, you know, we don't want to go to the opposite extreme and say he was just, you know, the saint. But, uh, but it, he wasn't as bad as people um, present him sometimes. When you turn to Allen Ginsberg, the, the beat poet whose verse uh, from, you know, Howell onward is filled with obscenity and sexuality and transgression and so on. You, you launch a judgment of him in calling him a bore. Now, Micah, is there anything you could say to Ginsburg that would be more irritating to him than to call him a bore? <laughs> not immoral, not, not obscene. No, uh, you're just a bore. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm being, I'm being a little bit, uh, you know, contentious there. But, but yeah, I think there, there is that. You know, Ginsburg. If you read his early poems, I mean, they're 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 really good. You know, I mean, he's this is a guy who really had a good ear. He would write uh, in in meter and and rhyme and so forth. Not that you have to write in meter and end rhyme, but he clearly knew how to do so and did so very well. And um, there are a number of poems that are very touching and you know humane and and so forth. But he often gets lauded for Howell um, and um, and for being sort of groundbreaking. He's doing something new, and um, and this is what he's all about. And I remember reading Howell a couple of times, you know, and it sort of struck me. It was like I don't know how long ago it was, but uh, this is it was more repetitive than than people often make out. And so when this a new volume of his of unselected poems, unpublished poems came out, you know, it was an opportunity kind of. To, to, to put uh, Allen Ginsberg, you know, take him down a notch a little bit at least. It helps that he's dead too. So, but, um, but yeah, he would have these constructions like, uh, you know, eyeball kicks. I remember that phrase when I first came across it in house. That's an interesting, you know, phrase until you realize he actually used it, you know, again in another poem. And then he has these pat phrases like machinery of milk, you know, uh, the remote control machinery, uh, you know, city machinery, it just appears over and over again, or robot. He would just, you know, it's very easy to be sort of um, um, original in a meaningless way. And that's what I kind of felt with with Ginsburg. He would just attach these different adjectives or do these different, you know, noun phrases or combinations. Um, that There was no sort of metaphor making going on here. We're just trying to put two disparate words together. And, uh, and obviously that's how metaphor works. Obviously, you know, the further apart... Um, the two, two parts of a metaphor are, are the more original we think it is, but there has to be something that holds them together. You know, there has to be some similarity that we can observe between these two things um, for them to sort of work in a meaningful way. And I think a lot of Ginsburg's um, poetry sort of disregarded that and was he was just trying to be as shocking and um, as um, spontaneous and original as, as, as he could and giving up on sort of the serious work of uh, serious work of of poetry and um, Ginsburg also had this view, which I think you know borrowed in some sense from all go all the way back to the Romantics. And there's a sense in which Ginsburg is a Romantic, you know, um, where he viewed sort of the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings is what leads to good poetry, and you know ignored the the craft that's necessary and um, and revision that's necessary. This is um, to revise one's poems is is not. Uh, is uh, not an act of you know submission to this tyrannical force. This is just how it works, you know. Um, and to expect that it would be any different is to to live in a fantasy world. So, it was nice to see an entry on Paul Lake, 
who had a long connection with First Things. Uh, you actually call him one of our very best poets. What should our listeners read by Paul Lake? Give, give, give us a few, a few things that they should know and, and what you really like about his, his work. Yeah, so The Republic of Virtue, which is uh, his uh, latest volume of poems, I don't know if he's had a, a volume since then. He's sort of uh, not, not producing as he, as he used to. Um, um, that's a great collection of his, of, his, of his poetry. And it's just, what I love about Paul Lake is the humility, right? You know, he, he doesn't sort of lord it over um, the reader and the honesty of his, of his poems and um, his, his ear and, and eye for complexity. You know, he has a beautiful poem about his daughter and, you know, typical um, domestic occasion. The teenage daughter gets upset at the father who tells her no or is overbearing in some way and she storms out of the house, you know, and um, he goes looking for her and, um, and uh, driving through. He thinks he sees a shadow of her and then he does and, and sees sees her and, and, you know, takes up the argument again with her on the road in the car and, until he realizes that uh, he simply has to let go, right? He is a father. He, you can't control the outcome of your children. You can guide them and lead them, but ultimately, you know, that's, that there's a limit to your uh, parental authority and power. Um, and so poems like this where, where um, you know, he, he, he handles those situations um very delicately, and, 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 and his prosody is wonderful and, and so forth. Um, his other poems, too, he, he's, he's not afraid of, of, of political topics, and he puts a, you know, um, uh, a, a sword or two into identity politics and, um, and skewers. Uh, also, the contemporary view of, 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 of poetry is, is something that um, one just sort of rattles off uh, and to be published, but then, but then to not be... To not be read. Um, so, so yeah. And he also has this, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting the title now. Maybe Mark, you remember it. But uh, he also wrote a, a novel um, that uh, um, it, it takes, you know, a sort of a modern version of Animal Farm. Um, that's a, a wonderful, wonderful work, and um, uh, we can uh, mention it perhaps on the website or something. So um, that's another work, novel, not not poetry that I would read. His essays, his he has a, a number of essays which unfortunately didn't collect in a in a in a book. Um, these are a more technical essays, but I think he's also one of our um, best critics. So what he what he did and um, was a you know in some sense a good example for me when I was a younger critic is, you know, he would engage um, a lot of contemporary uh, avant-garde poetry. He has a, a beautiful essay um, on uh, Charles Bernstein, who um, um, is a, a very ra- radical, or used to be a very radical poet. Charles Bernstein, his view was that um, poets should avoid complex sentences, should avoid any sort of meter or form that these were imposed by "quote unquote" the man, right? To uh, to um, you know um, uh, keep us in submission, and so we should break free, write ug- ugly poems that uh, can't Micah, be published. Yeah, it's not the man; it's the man, right? About the form issue, you know, you you actually single out also A.M. Juster, who's who's connected with first things now, uh, Christian Wyman. Who was our our poetry reader uh, at SBI at our harassment week a couple of years ago? Dana Joya, as well, and these are these are poets who have a much more controlled feel for form. And 
one essay, this is, this is my, our, our last question. One essay in here is called, Is Free Verse Immoral? Is it? No, that's that's it's not. There was a, a handful of essays at Public Discourse a couple of years ago, um, where, in which this was put forward, and I don't think it is because um, you know, first of all, free verse is nearly not you know at free as we know that the poetry has all sorts of um, different kinds of form. One doesn't have to have end rhyme or a regular meter um, to have it organized um, and in a in a certain way to highlight order, to have a sort of symmetry, um, concision, and those sorts of things can be in, in free verse. I think it's harder to write good free verse um, poems, but um, I think a lot of times formal poets, uh, which I love, are obviously, you know, um, but and, and not in collecting the volume, but maybe some aspiring formal poets sort of view the sonnet as something that was, you know, descended, you know, from God himself and and forget that, no, this was invented, you know, this was invented by people and, and exploring language. And so, so you know, I think um, poets who are not writing in traditional form, but are sort of looking at language and responding to the musicality of words, looking at the order that we see in language and uh, being creative and perhaps developing new forms out of that uh, exploration is something that we want to encourage today not to sort of just live in the past and say, these are the forms we can't write any, any other way. I think that's uh, overly limiting. The book is The Soul is a Stranger in This World, Essays on Poets and Poetry. Micah Maddox, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.